the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blind is producing, Clark Hilton Engineering, and Dan Rice, well... He's given up his office for the sake of the cause. Today, we're going to continue my conversation with Dr. Michelle. She is the host of the Father, or excuse me, the Dad Whisperer. She's also the author of Let's Talk, Conversation Starters for Dads and Daughters. We began our conversation yesterday, and if you missed it, you can go to the Georgine Rice Show page podcast and hear the first part of that conversation. Great book for dads, and for that matter, for moms and others who care about uh, girls in the family as well. That's coming up later this hour. Taking a look at some of the day's headlines, Ted Cruz slammed his Democratic colleagues after an Antifa hearing, saying they want to encourage these radical leftists. Democrats are facilitating riots and violence in major U.S. cities and encouraging radical leftists who are threatening Americans. Senator Cruz said this uh, Tuesday evening on Hannity discussing a contentious Senate Judiciary Committee a subcommittee hearing earlier in the day. What's happening, unfortunately, he went on to say, is not free speech. And those who are peaceably protesting are seeing their protests hijacked by violent anarchists, by Marxists who are engaged in acts of terror. At the end of the day, none of this is complicated. Don't assault your fellow citizens. Don't firebomb a police car. Don't loot and destroy small businesses. Don't murder police officers, end quote. Well, the hearing later took a turn for the worse when a combative um, Senator Hirano from Hawaii addressed Cruz after he completed a 10-minute speech in which she told him Democrats denounced violence and complained Cruz wasn't listening. Hirano walked out after the exchange. And other related developments, the L.A. ballot measure that would shift nearly $900 million away from law enforcement is on the ballot. And the FBI has opened 300 domestic terror investigations as a result of the riots. Attorneys tell Capitol hearing on Antifa. And Oregon Democrats want to replace police officers using unarmed teams funded via Medicaid. And that would, of course, require a hike. Well, police uh, body camera footage of the moments before Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin pinned George Floyd's neck under Chauvin's knee should have been released much sooner than just this week. Tucker Carlson argued uh, last night on his program the footage from former rookie officer Thomas Lane and Jay Anderson Kroenig was obtained by the Daily Mail and published on Monday. In it, about 18 minutes of video from Koenig's body camera and 10 minutes from Lane's camera are shown. But it shows four Minneapolis police officers struggling with Floyd on the 25th of May before one of them, later identified as Chauvin, ultimately pins Floyd to the ground in a scene that sparked protests wor- uh, worldwide. The um, catechism has been written and it's in stone. George Floyd is a martyr, period, Carlson said. But in America, that's not good enough. It's not a real answer. In free societies, citizens have a right to know why things are changing so quickly. Other related developments, a watchdog group is accusing police of excessive force in the George Floyd protests. And police body cam footage um, uh, has been leaked. Jason Whitlock claims that the leaked footage show's early narrative of his death was a face hoax. Not sure quite what he meant by that, but it does confirm that he was not a threat. 
In a short televised speech on Wednesday morning, Lebanese Prime Minister Hassan Diab, he appealed to the world for help one day after a devastating explosion at Beirut port, killing more than 100 people, injuring more than 4,000, with both numbers expected to rise. We are witnessing a real catastrophe, he said, reiterating his pledge that those responsible will be punished, although the cause remains unclear, according to the Associated Press. George Kitena, Secretary General of the Lebanese Red Cross, said the numbers may rise. Officials have said the city's hospitals are overflowing with patients. The explosion sent a huge mushroom cloud into the sky and flattened much of the port. Beirut newspaper dubbed the explosion the Great Collapse, and it was believed to be the largest blast in Middle Eastern capital has ever seen. Meanwhile, President Trump said U.S. military generals told him it was likely a bomb. I've met with some of our great generals, and they just seemed to feel that this was not some kind of manufacturing explosion type of event. They seemed to think it was an attack. It was a bomb of some kind. But some officials in Washington quickly dubbed the president's remarks premature. In other related developments, uh, Keene is urging caution. The president uh, suggested a bomb caused the Beirut explosion. We don't have all the facts, he says. And the president's description as, um, of the blast as an attack was premature, some U.S. officials have also said. Well, Kansas Republicans chose Representative Marshall over the firebrand Kobach in the uh, Senate seat race for primaries yesterday. And a Florida woman was kicked off the American Airlines flight for wearing an offensive mask. A missing amphibious vehicle was found off of the coast of California, including service members' remains. And hair loss may be a coronavirus symptom, according to a new study. A coronavirus mask dispute in New Jersey led to the arrest to an arrest after a woman with a cane, age 54, was attacked. I don't know if she wasn't wearing one, was wearing one, was wearing it improperly. People are pretty touchy these days. Well, multiple companies are interested in purchasing TikTok, the president says, and the second wave of layoffs is underway amid the coronavirus pandemic. Stephen Moore insists that the president has the authority to enact payroll tax holiday. People really do like the idea, and he's considering imposing one. There's been mass casualties in Beirut that yet to be explained. How uh, how normal is it to store 2,700 tons of highly explosive material in the middle of a metro area with 2.2 million residents? That's a question Amy Swearer asks. It's a serious question, but because to a layman that seems like something someone somewhere should have uh, had second thoughts about at some point in the process. Dan Crimshaw says, I've spent time in Beirut on a few occasions while in the military. It is full of great people who deserve better, praying for the victims and their families after this horrific explosion. Stay strong, Beirut. Meanwhile, Jill Biden says Joe will show up for the debates. There are only three, and the first one begins after ballots are already uh, mailed out and people can, in fact, begin voting. Uh, She was interviewed on Dana Perino and said, I think it's three debates that uh, they decided on. So, yeah, he'll be there. The president wants more debates and sooner. And Jazz Shaw writes, there are Democrats out there who are feeling pressure to get some excitement ramped up in hopes that it will have helpful effects further down the ballot. Well, we'll see what actually happens in terms of debates and what happens down ballot as well. Well, Democrat Maisie Hirano was upset with Senator Ted Cruz. Uh, He was calling out the Democrat Party for refusing to denounce Antifa. Andy No says, I don't understand the Democrat strategy to coddle Antifa or pretend they don't exist. We're confronted with an insurrectionary uh, anti-anarchist communist movement that has the explicit goal of overthrowing the U.S. government. If that's not enough to condemn them, I wonder what it will take. 
Meanwhile, de Blasio admits that he ignored the application process to get the Black Lives Matter murals painted. He explained that uh, that is something that, again, transcends all normal realities because we are at a moment of history when that had to be said and done. That's a decision I made. So apparently it had to be done. Keep that in mind if you want to uh, engage in something. You might just point out it's a moment in history that you thought it had to be done, whether or not it violates the law or circumvents the process that the law prescribes. Byron York says that New York may be Mayor de Blasio of the mayor. Black Lives Matter transcends all normal realities. Hmm. Everybody else applies for a permit and prepares to be delayed and denied. But. For de Blasio, I guess he lived in another reality. The New York City Health Commission has resigned, leaving with this statement. Our experts are world-renowned for their epidemiology, surveillance, and responsive work. The city uh, would do well serving uh, by having them at the strategic center of the response, not in the background. And according to a new poll, GOP is poised to keep control of the Senate as they lead in Alabama, the pickup, Kentucky and Texas. The race appears tight for Lindsey Graham in South Carolina. However, later this hour, we'll share the remainder of my conversation with Dr. Michelle. She's the host of The Dad Whisperer. She's also the author of her latest book, Let's Talk, Conversation Starters for Dads and Daughters. So stay with us. That's coming up in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Later this hour, we'll talk with Dr. Michelle. She's the host of The Dad Whisperer. She's also author of Let's Talk, Conversation Starters for Dads and Daughters. I want to invite you to join Pastor Greg Laurie. He is the host of A New Beginning every weekday at 6 a.m. right here on 93.9 KPDQ. Greg Laurie is the founding pastor of Harvest Christian Fellowship. He delivers compelling, practical insights on faith and culture, current events, with an emphasis on the saving power of the gospel. You can tune in to A New Beginning with Pastor Greg Laurie every weekday at 6 a.m. right here, 93.9 KPDQ. Well, eight in 10 Americans see the media as biased. Not only do most Americans recognize media bias, they also believe it's intentional. When asked about their views of news organizations they distrust, 79% of poll respondents said those outlets were trying to persuade people to adopt a certain viewpoint. When news is inaccurate, 54% of Americans think it's because reporters are misrepresenting the facts, while 28% assume they're making them up entirely. Sean Spicer says, I'm guessing the 14% that don't believe this work, uh, believe this um, uh, skepticism, actually work for the media. 86% of Americans believe there is a great deal or a fair amount of political bias in the way the media covers news, up almost 25% since 2007. And landlords in Baltimore are suing to stop the ban on rent increases. Too many tenants, they say, aren't paying rent at all. And those who are can't have their rent increased, as had been previously anticipated and planned for by the landlords. But the bills still keep coming due. Maintenance has to be done and taxes must be paid. A group of landlords owning a total of um, thousands of rental units in the city and surrounding counties have uh, filed suit. They're going to court. And the second hottest selling NBA jersey is a player who refused to take a knee during the national anthem. The little-known Jonathan Isaac of the Orlando Magic is suddenly a star. And a film center here in Oregon has canceled the showing of Kindergarten Cop after a writer complained it somehow brings back the school-to-prison pipeline. Clearly, the critic hasn't seen 
the movie. On this day in history, 1884, the cornerstone for the Statue of Liberty is laid. 1861, President Lyndon, or rather President Lincoln, signs the Revenue Act of 1861, the first income tax in America. 1914, the first electric traffic lights are installed in Cleveland. 1936, Jesse Owens wins the 200-meter dash at the Berlin Olympics, collecting the third of his four gold medals for the U.S. 1953, Operation Big Switch begins as the remaining prisoners taken during the Korean War are exchanged at um, Panmujom. 1962, Nelson Mandela is arrested on charges of leaving South Africa without a passport and inciting workers to strike. It's the beginning of 27 years of imprisonment. On this day in history, 1964, U.S. Navy pilot Everett Alvarez Jr. becomes the first American flyer to be shot down and captured by the North Vietnamese. He would be um, held prisoner until February of 1973, again, shot down in 1964 on this day in history. Finally, in 2010, the Senate confirms Elena Kagan to be the Associate Justice of the Supreme Court with a vote of 63 to 37. Well, Joe Biden is no longer planning to travel to the Democratic Convention site of Milwaukee to accept the party's presidential nomination, citing coronavirus concerns. Convention organizers said in a statement today that Biden will instead accept the Democratic nomination and deliver a speech from his home state of Delaware, and other speakers also will not go to Milwaukee. From the very beginning of this pandemic, we put the health and safety of the American people first, they say. We follow the science, listen to doctors and public health experts, and we continue making adjustments to our plans in order to protect lives. That's the kind of steady and responsible leadership America deserves. And that's the leadership Joe Biden will bring to the White House. That's a quote from Tom Perez, Democratic National Committee chairman. Well, as presumptive Democratic presidential nominee, Biden uh, spends this week at his home in Delaware, holding one-on-one meetings with roughly half a dozen contenders who have uh, made his short list for running mate. A new report speculates that the former vice president has narrowed his choices down to two candidates. Those two, according to Biden confidants who spoke with Axios, are Senator Kamala Harris of California and Susan Rice, who served as national security advisor and ambassador to the United Nations under President Obama's administration. Last week, uh, Biden told reporters that he would choose his party's vice presidential nominee by the first week in August. But a source familiar with the process says uh, said on Monday that an announcement isn't likely this week. With the August 17th start of the Democratic National Convention nearing, a leading Biden advisor said the former vice president would use the next week or so to spend some time with the contenders on that short list. Well, Tuesday's primaries had two big winners. Um, What that means for November is, I suppose, a good question. There are now several key questions with less than 100 days until the presidential election. Fewer than 100 days until the presidential election. Well, ultimately, the results uh, underscore the delicate balance between moderates and progressives in the Democratic Party and the potential peril that presumptive Democrat presidential nominee Joe Biden faces if the progressives are able to push him too far to the left. Well, in several races, establishment-backed pro-Trump candidates who are favored to win the general election pulled out victories over their politically risky challengers whose nominations may have cost the Republican Party the seat in November. Most notably, in the Republican Senate primary in Kansas, Chris Kobach, the former Kansas State Secretary of State, was soundly defeated by Representative Roger Marshall, 
Republican from Kansas, a conservative congressman, and the choice of establishment leaders. A polarizing figure, Kobach is uh, known for his hardline stance on a range of issues. His victory would have put Republicans in peril of losing an otherwise safe Senate seat, thus risking their already precarious Senate uh, majority. And while the president chose to stay out of the race, didn't lend any endorsement to either candidate, both candidates campaigned on their ties to the president and had ad- ran ads featuring Trump, a sign of the president's considerable influence there, especially within the Republican Party, even as his national polling numbers falter. Uh, further, on the heels of the victory of Tommy Tuberville, who received a full throttle, full throttled endorsement from the president in Alabama, the Senate primary last month, two Republican-held Senate seats that were potentially at risk should remain reliably in the hands of pro-Trump Republicans, thus complicating Democrats' path to winning the Senate. And former Deputy Attorney General Sally Yates told the Senate Judiciary Committee today that when the FBI interviewed then-incoming National Security Advisor Michael Flynn, Uh, In January of 2017, it was done without her authorization and that she was upset when she found out about it. Committee Chairman Senator Lindsey Graham asked Yates about the circumstances surrounding the interview, particularly the actions of then-FBI Director James Comey. I was upset that Director Comey didn't coordinate that with us and acted unilaterally, she said. Did Comey go rogue, Graham asked. You could use that term, yes, Yates said. Well, Yates said she also took issue with Comey for not telling her that Flynn's communications with then-Russian Ambassador Kislyak were being investigated and that she first learned about this from President Barack Obama during the Oval Office meeting. Yates said she was irritated with Comey for not telling her about this earlier. That meeting, which took place in January of 2017, was of great interest to Graham, who wanted to know why Obama knew about Flynn's conversations before she did. Graham and other Republicans have speculated that Obama wanted Flynn investigated for nefarious purposes. Yates uh, claimed that she that this was rather not the case and explained why Obama was aware of the call's at the time. And some 100 House Republicans are warning of a national debt growing exponentially in perpetuity and how that represents a financial burden for generations to come. We're now spending our grandchildren's future. Representative Mike Johnson from Louisiana told the Daily Signal in a phone interview on Tuesday ahead of the planned release on Wednesday of an open letter on the issue from the House Republican Study Committee. Now, you may even be at our grand, our great-grandchildren because it takes so long on this trajectory to pay it off. Johnson is the chairman of the Republican Study Committee, which compares nearly 150, or rather comprises nearly 150 GOP members of the House. Since the turn of the century, our national debt has nearly quadrupled to around $27 trillion, representing a debt of $204,000 per household, and will continue to grow exponentially into perpetuity. The committee's letter says the aim of the letter is to illustrate to the American people the severity of the national debt. Johnson said our effort is to start talking about this in terms of what it means to the average American, the Louisiana Republican said. Not only do we have a $204,000 household share of this debt, but we have to communicate that the debt really does impact Americans as individuals. You explain that money you earn will go to pay interest to uh, debt holders and China and not your family. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we'll uh, talk with Michelle Watson. Dr. Uh, Michelle is the host of The Dad Whisperer, author of Let's Talk, Conversation Starters for Dads and Daughters. We'll continue a conversation we began yesterday. 
So stick around. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. As promised, in these next couple of segments, I'm going to continue a conversation I began yesterday with Dr. Michelle Watson Canfield. She's the host of The Dad Whisperer, heard right here on KPDQ, and the author of her second book, Let's Talk conversation starters for dads and daughters. She combines her decades of experience in coaching fathers and counseling young women, and she uh, helps dads, um, well, uh, close the communication gap with their daughters. The book shows dads how to listen and to build trust with insights and scripted questions. Did you get that? Scripted questions uh, that enable them to move from the kind of fun get-to-know-your-daughter chats to the deep discussions that dive into their daughter's struggles, their hurts, their fears, and hopes as they mature and the relationship matures as well. Well, Dr. Michelle is a licensed professional counselor. She's a speaker, author, and founder of the ABBA Project, an education process group uh, form for dads and daughters aged 13 to 30. She's a radio podcast host of The Dad Whisperer and co-author of Other Daughter Initiative at the National Center for Fathering. She seeks to live out her God-given assignment by inspiring, equipping, and leading fathers uh, to dial into their daughter's hearts with more intentionality and consistency. She maintains a full-time counseling practice in her hometown right here in Portland, and I'm just delighted to have you back today. Welcome, Dr. Michelle. Glad to be back. Thanks, Georgine. I want to mention it's Dr. Michelle Watson Canfield uh, because you uh, recently uh, married and congratulations on that for listeners who didn't uh, hear us yesterday. Can you tell us just a bit about your life? Well, I'm telling you, I've known Ken Canfield since 2011 and his wife went to be with Jesus last year and surprised both of us. And we share a similar passion for fathering. He started the National Center for Fathering 30 years ago. So it's been a joy truly to just run now alongside a man who shares a passion like I do for fathers of daughters. Yeah, yeah. Well, in this latest book, it is um, a very practical, hands-on book that's designed to help dads engage with their daughters. Uh, Let's talk a bit, as uh, we did yesterday, but let's talk a bit about why it's important for dads to be intentional in reaching out and, and meeting with their daughters where they are and how that increases in importance over time. Right. So when dads look at the research about how important and vital they are in the lives of their daughters, I don't think they hear enough, especially in the media. You know, I think sometimes dads on television or in movies are made to look out like silly, you know, rather than a vital part at the core of the identity of a daughter and a son. Right. We share the same name typically as our fathers. The identity formation in us as children comes from our fathers. And I believe that really roots in the heart of God as a father, right? Where we are rooted and grounded in him. And so the more a dad can invest in his daughter, the more she will know who she is and whose she is. Yeah. And what a difference that makes. How how does a dad know that he's making progress in his relationship with his daughter? What should he look for? Well, the, the biggest thing is he has to ask her, and I, I was, I love things on a zero to 10 scale. Like he could go, how do you think we're doing? And she could go fine. And he goes, good. That isn't, that isn't enough. <laughs> Say on a scale of zero to 10, hon, with 10 being as close as we could be, zero being not close at all, where would you rank our closeness? Or where would you rank me as a dad? How am I doing as your dad? Because as you guys know, every one of your kids who didn't come with a playbook, but every one of them requires a different playbook anyway. Mm -hmm. So you ask each individual one, not only zero to 10, where would you rate, you know, 
our closeness? Where would you rate me as a dad in how I'm investing in you? And three, what could I do to become a better dad to you? So I would say that's one thing. Ask your daughter those questions. Number two, ask her mom. Ask her mom for ideas. Because sometimes girls are venting to mom about the problems with dad. And I think sometimes if men could be more open to hearing from their wives, maybe even, yep, I'm going to say this, your ex-wife, if you can have a good relationship there to ask her, what could I do to be a better dad to our daughter in this season of her life? Or if you don't have a good relationship with an ex-wife, ask your sister, who's an aunt Mm. to to your daughter. Ask some other woman for input. It'll go a long way to you reaching her heart. Oh, that's so good. Uh, you you say that it's important for a daughter to be free over time to talk to her dad about any and everything. And of course, that kind of relationship starts out on some of the lighter issues. But then there are other issues like sex and bullying and addiction, issues that many girls and women will face in the course of their lifetime. Um, can you give uh, our listeners, our dads, a few pointers on how to best cover these topics? And again, it's, you start out with the lighter topics, but do need to move towards some of the deeper, more mature subjects as well. Mm-hmm. So that's why in Let's Talk, I do start with the lighter, more fun conversations, even activities and games. And if you have a younger daughter, that's a great place to start. And then in the book, Let's talk conversation starters for dads and daughters. I'm giving dads scripts because Georgine, men have said, I don't always know what to say. Yeah. It seems like anything I say causes a negative reaction. So I literally said, well, I'm a girl. I'm a woman. I think maybe if you asked it this way, you might get a different result. So for example, dad, getting into the deeper end of the pool, so to speak, like Georgine just mentioned some of the topics, but ones on self-esteem, body image, sex, sexuality, sexual harassment, even same-sex attraction, some of these, you know, vaping, things that are facing your kids. Like you said, peer pressure issues, standing up, standing alone, how to be a world changer, things like that. But dad, if you literally open the book and ask your daughter, pick a conversation that you think would have interest to you, then you don't have to do all the heavy lifting. You can say, I would love us to have conversations that are more, you know, vulnerable or more real. Let her choose out of the book on that date, go to somewhere fun that she wants to go to get food or to go do something fun, but make sure you have a conversation, not just do something together. It's important to talk because we figure things out by talking. Like I said yesterday, So dads, if you can get her talking, let her pick topics in the book that she would love to open up to you about. You know, that's so important. You mentioned you can take the book with you. I think sometimes we feel like we have to uh, pretend almost that the questions are original to us, that we can't put on ourselves. It's perfectly acceptable for dad to use this tool book uh, with um, his conversations and interactions with his daughter. Exactly. I honestly have had daughters say they think it's kind of cute that their dads (laughs) maybe even stumble. I think dads think they have to be competent in order, you know, to do this. And I say, dad, you don't have to be perfect. You just have to be present. You've got to show up. So come with the book in hand. And if you write down what she says, either either in the book or, or with an adjunct book, that becomes your playbook for that daughter. And I guarantee you, you will go back to that in years to come. You'll have it as a time capsule of that season of her life. And she gets to sit there saying, I can't believe I matter this much to my dad, that he would write down what I have to say. Because Georgine, you and I are in the same age range. 
I would have loved my dad doing that when I was in middle school or high school. Would you have? Oh, absolutely. To see your dad vulnerable and to to see that he it matters to him that it's so important that he would take note. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're we're telling dads everywhere. This is what would have mattered to us. So do it. Follow follow our lead here saying, we're telling you dads, do this with your daughters. You could do it every year annually. Update the playbook. It'll be a treasure when she's old. You could even give the book back to her as an adult. I just think it could be a a really beautiful win-win. You have a section at the back of your book that flips the script, if you will, so that the daughter asks her dad about his life. Now, this is such a great idea. How important are these conversations where the daughter has the opportunity to learn more about her dad? And she kind of initiates that, uh, that conversation, that engagement. Exactly. Well, that was born out of research that I did in the ABBA project that I do where I lead groups for dads of daughters, where the daughters started saying, we're tired of being on the hot seat all the time. (laughs) And I thought, huh, I thought girls would love this, but it made sense, right? Because it was, it needed to be two way. It was too much one way. So when a daughter learns to sit down and actually increase her interpersonal skill set by having questions in front of her to ask her dad, it does a couple of things. One, she learns to not rely just on technology or 280 characters in a, you know, in a tweet or whatever. She's learning to actually in real time invest in asking good questions because they're in front of her. But number two, the more your daughter can learn about your life, dad, maybe it's your childhood, your relationship with your parents, your romantic history, things you wish you'd done different and learned the hard way. Age appropriate, of course, you're going to share less or more depending on her age. But the more your daughter will see that you're not perfect, that you're human too, that you've learned along the way. So this is a really powerful part of the book to teach a daughter how to ask questions and to teach dads how to open up to their daughters. We're talking with Dr. Michelle Watson Canfield, her latest book, Let's Talk, Conversation Starters for Dads and Daughters. The book is published by Bethany House. We're going to take a quick break, but we will continue our conversation. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing my conversation with Dr. Michelle Watson Canfield. She's the host of The Dad Whisperer, heard right here on KPDQ. She's also the author of Let's Talk, Conversation Starters for Dads and Daughters. Uh, this is such an important book, and I appreciate that this a second book of yours is very practical, hands-on for, for dads to help them move forward in their relationships with their daughters. What was the relationship with uh, your father like for you growing up? You know, I'm the oldest of four girls, so my poor dad got thrown in the deep end of you know traveling to Venus. And what I would say is I'm the most intense of all four of us girls in many ways, very emotional, very verbal has always been my wiring. And I remember a number of probably five years ago only asking my dad, you know, are we, are we close? Do you think we're close? And my dad said, I don't think we're as close as you to be, which I mm. thought was interesting. Mm-hmm. And he was right. And you know what the difference was is I wanted us talking more vulnerably. That's to me what defined closeness. And my dad looked at me, Georgine, and he actually said something that sort of stung a little bit, but I appreciated his honesty and vulnerability. He said, Michelle, your words actually wear me out. (laughs) And I was like, really? Okay. And I look at that going, well, at least we had enough of a relationship for honest and open communication. Yes. 
But I truly believe that the book that I just wrote would have helped my dad through the years to pace with me, his verbal emotional daughter, because he would have had something in front of him to guide the conversation versus going, mom, you go deal with her. And, and yes, my dad and I have done dad-daughter dates. You know, I've done being single, you know, till the age of 60. I've done lots of vacations with both of my parents. We do things together. My dad and I, for about five years, did grocery shopping together at Costco. Every Monday night, you know, people there wave, where's your dad? Where's your, Michelle? You know, when we go, because they know us. So this kind of conversation that I'm putting in the books, these kinds of conversations are really many of them what I wish I could have had with my dad, because though we have had a close relationship, this is how it could have been even closer. Yeah, yeah. And I think for a lot of fathers who are raising little girls who become teenagers, who become grown women, it's it's challenging to imagine how am I going to relate to her? And I have this conversation with several of my coworkers from time to time. How am I going to relate to her when she's a teenager? How am I going to speak with her when she's a young woman, when she's a college student? And there's kind of a growing sense of anxiety about how am I going to relate to this little girl I would lay my life down for in a heartbeat? Um, and this is such an excellent tool to help them uh, to prepare for that lifelong engagement with the, uh, the the little girl that they are fathering. Exactly. And that's why the first section, Lead Her to Laugh, is so important because if your daughter is younger, dads, she may only be able to handle the questions and the activities in that section. You know, like where you're both doing a best photo of the day game and you take your phones and you go out on themes and you come back and then you surprise her by you know, buying a frame for your favorite photo. You know, if she's only eight or 10, that may, may be all she can handle. But you're building a foundation yes. for the house for later. And then the lead her to love, leading her to love herself so she can love others. Then leading her to look at maybe wounds from you, voids from you, places where you've missed meeting her heart. But, but then it gets into lead her to lament. And you know what's interesting, Georgine, is just two weeks ago, my new husband, Ken Canfield, said to me, I think this is your most important chapter in the whole book. Mm -hmm. I said, really? He said, I don't think a lot of dads know how to lament with their kids to go where the grief is, especially if they're the ones that have caused it. You know, and here he's walking alongside, he has three daughters, eight granddaughters, one daughter-in-law. He's walking alongside all of his kids right now in lamenting still the loss of his wife. And he's in the deep end with them. And everyone is at a different place. But dad, when you walk through grief with your kids, grief of a pet or a best friend where you may want her to just get over it, I'm going, get my book and walk through the process so you don't bypass the process where she has to rush through it just to make you okay with her and proud of her. She needs you to walk through the entirety of the process so that it doesn't stay festering as a wound. And then you trauma bond in the process, which is the strongest bond you can have. You know, it's so interesting that you would say that. When I was growing up, we lost my older brother. He was two years older than me. And I would say, I mentioned yesterday, uh, dating my dad and and how meaningful that was to me. When my my brother died, my father walked me through lament. And that stands out as maybe the second most significant way that my father and I related to one another. His example, his care, his response. It is such an important 
um, part of that bonding experience, but also teaching your daughter by example and through relationship how to lament in a way that she can recover from and move forward through. And uh, again, I think that's an important chapter in your book. You know, I so appreciate you sharing your own story there because it reminds me even, I can think of the last few years in the AVA project, I will ask these men, how many of you, and I'm talking specifically about a dad-daughter wound, because the lament section is also where a dad asks his daughter, like, are there any words I've spoken to you that have stuck with Mm, you that have made you feel better about yourself? But then the flip side, are there any words I've spoken to you that have stuck with you that, that have made you feel worse about yourself. And so I've asked these dads, how many of you are married to a woman or were married to a woman or dated a woman who's birthed your child, but where you would say the woman you you know has father wounds or father voids that are still affecting her? Every hand goes up every year. They always mm-hmm. say yes. And I'm saying, can you imagine what it would be, would be like if those dads had been equipped to clean out those wounds and make amends when they were younger, they wouldn't be carrying them into adulthood. So I'm very passionate about dads being equipped to make things right, make amends, ask forgiveness without defensiveness earlier than later so their daughters don't carry it any further than they need to. Oh, that's so good. Now, we're just about out of time. Let me ask you, what's your greatest hope for dads who read this book and for their daughters? My greatest hope is that dads would kick it up a notch in pursuing their daughter's hearts. Because when our hearts are fully open and fully alive for the glory of God, we're able to step into our calling. We're able to love ourselves and love people better. And ultimately, dads, that's how you build a bridge to God as a father. So when you're not there, your daughter can relate to him with more ease, more freedom, and more openness. Oh, that's so good. Once again, the book is titled Let's Talk, Conversation Starters for Dads and Daughters. And the best way for our listeners to acquire several copies? (laughs) You can go to my website, drmichellewatson.com. And I have free resources there. And right on the homepage, there's a link where you can buy my book. It's at Amazon. It's at any book retailer. I'd love you to get a copy and write me. Tell me how the book impacted your relationship with your daughter or your son, because even moms can use this book. Moms and grandmas who want to see the men in their lives, maybe it's son, son son-in-law more equipped to engage their daughters, get it for them, write me and let me know how it works. Well, I am so grateful for you and your ministry. And once again, congratulations on your new marriage. Thank you. It's been a joy to be here with you, Georgine. Look forward to the next time. Thank you. I can hardly wait. (laughs) Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We've got news and traffic coming up, and we'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend is producing Clark Hilton Engineering. We're going to wind our way through some stories uh, in this hour. We're also going to talk about um, Pastor MacArthur, who may face fine and arrest for holding services. And one pastor here in the Portland area has written about uh, how to respond to the burning of Bibles here in the Portland area. All of that coming up this hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, Novavax, the little-known Maryland company that receives about $1.6 billion deal from the federal government for its experimental coronavirus vaccine, announced encouraging results in two preliminary studies yesterday. In one study, 56 volunteers produced a high level of antibodies against the virus without any dangerous side effects. And in the other, researchers found that the vaccine strongly protected 
monkeys from coronavirus infections altogether. And although it's not possible to directly compare the data from clinical trials of different coronavirus vaccines, a virologist from uh, Weill Cornell Medicine, who is uh, not involved in the study, said the Norovax results were the most impressive he'd seen so far. This is the first one I've uh, looked at and saying, yeah, I'd take that, Dr. Moore said. Another virologist from uh, Columbia University who was not involved in the study either called them encouraging preliminary results, but cautioned that it won't be possible to say whether the vaccine is safe and effective until Norovax conducts a large-scale study known as Phase 3, comparing people who get vaccinated to people who get a placebo. So a little more encouraging news. How much do you know or think you know about COVID-19? Well, let me ask you a few questions. COVID-19 is now the leading cause of death in the U.S. True or false? Well, the answer is it's not even close. As of the 25th of last month, the most recent data for which Centers for the Disease Control and Prevention data is available, there were 135,579 deaths related to the contagion, less than 10% of the more than 1.5 million deaths that have occurred in the U.S. so far this year. COVID-19 isn't even the leading cause of death among the elderly, although it accounts for more than 9% of deaths among those 65 and older. Cancer and heart disease, they continue to claim the most lives by far in this age group, while unintentional injuries cause the most deaths among people under 45. And what about this question? The U.S. has the highest COVID-19 death rate in the world. Well, that's false as well. As of the third of this month, there were 158,706 COVID-19-related deaths nationally, according to Worldometer's data, the most uh, in the world. But with a population of 330 million, the U.S. is also among the world's most populous. The more accurate metric of comparison is the COVID-19 death rate per million population. By that standard, the U.S. ranks eighth among countries with populations of one million or more, Behind Belgium, the U.K., Spain, Peru, Italy, Sweden, and Chile. How about this question? The U.S. has more confirmed cases than any other country because it has tested much more extensively than any other country. The answer? False. As of the second of this month, the U.S. had performed nearly 181,000 tests per million population, and that placed us ninth in the world behind the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, Denmark, the UK, Singapore, Russia, Lithuania, and Israel. All of those countries, except for Bahrain, reported fewer cases per million population than did the United States. Now, here's another question. According to the uh, CDC, how many children under 15 have died with COVID-19 as of uh, the 25th of July? The answer? 42, 420, 4,200, 42,000. Well, uh, as of July the 25th, 42 uh, were among children under the age of 15 who have uh, died with the coronavirus. That represents about 0.3% of the deaths in this age group. And as one might expect, those were related to uh, those who had underlying conditions. COVID-19 is not even among the 10 leading causes of death among school-aged and preschool-aged children. Ironically, while children under 15 account for... Uh, for less than 1% of COVID-19 deaths, and the elderly account for 80% of deaths. Public debate centers on reopening schools, not on making nursing homes safer. Hmm, go figure. Here's another question. 
Sweden, the only country in Europe that didn't impose a lockdown, suffered far more COVID-19 related deaths on a population basis than any other European country. The answer? False. Supporters of lockdowns have repeatedly decried Sweden's refusal to impose them on its population, forecasting an epidemic of medieval proportions. The number of confirmed cases in Sweden peaked in June, the 24th to be uh, precise, later than in most European lockdown countries and has declined sharply ever since. Sweden has had fewer COVID-19 deaths per million population than Belgium, the UK, Spain and Italy, all of whom deployed widespread lockdowns. I'm sure the answer to the question why is much more complicated than the answer, true or false, but there you have it. What about this question? Florida's COVID-19 deaths now rival those of New York. The answer, false. Now, if you um, got this one wrong, you're in good company. White House Coronavirus Task Force head Dr. Deborah Burks recently announced that the Sunshine State, along with Texas and California, was now one of three New Yorks. Well, that's a distortion. The virus is spreading among Floridians and the number of COVID-19 related deaths has been rising and will continue to do so. But as of the 1st of August, Florida's deaths per million population are ranked below the U.S. average and New Jersey and Connecticut. Now, equating the conditions in Florida this summer with those that prevailed in New York and the Northeast this uh, past spring is pretty reckless and inaccurate. In fact, the list of of, uh, counties with the most coronavirus-related deaths hasn't changed all that much since late April, according to usafacts.org. Now, eight of the 10 counties that led the U.S. in deaths at the end of April were still on the top 10 list at the end of July. Okay, what about this, uh, this question? Wearing a mask will, A, prevent you from getting COVID-19, B, make you sick, C, both of the above, or D, neither of the above? Well, the answer is D, neither of the above. Masks have taken on mythical proportions in the public imagination, says uh, CDC Director Dr. Robert Redfield in July. I think if we could uh, get everybody to wear a mask now, I think in four, six, eight weeks, we could bring this epidemic under control. First, there's the um, imprecision of his forecast. Does he think it's four, six, or eight weeks? Uh, what does he mean uh, under control? So there's a big question there in the statement. Uh, then there's the utopian nature of the hypothetical. How would you go about getting everyone to wear a mask all the time? It suggests that Redfield was making another of those unsubstantiated off-the-cuff statements to which public health officials seem prone and are not very helpful. On the other side, social media resonate with warnings that masks deprive the body of oxygen. So will wearing a mask prevent you from getting infected or send you into a stupor of hypothetical? The answer is neither. Masks may help prevent people who have COVID-19 from spreading the virus to others, according to the CDC. They don't protect the mask wearer, but they may protect others from the mask wearer. The CDC also says that wearing a mask may have this effect because scientific certainty isn't possible. You can't conduct a properly controlled experiment that yields scientific proof that masks really help prevent the spread of the coronavirus. If there's no definitive proof that masks work, why wear them? mostly common sense. Scientists seem fairly certain that COVID-19 is spread by droplets, although there's some evidence it presents in aerosols. Either way, it's in our breath. And what about this one? 20% of the U.S. population has had the coronavirus. True or false? 20%. False. A survey of 1,000 Americans by the international polling firm um, Kexit CNC found that most of us 
think that the virus has uh, infected 20% of the population. As of the second of this month, Johns Hopkins University had tallied nearly 4.7 million cases or about 1.4% of the U.S. population. Of course, many COVID-19 cases go undiagnosed, so the survey respondents may not be uh, as far off as they seem. It's also worth noting that Americans aren't alone in overestimating the extent the extent of the pandemic in their country. The same survey found that people in the UK, Germany, France, and Sweden also overestimated the percentage of their countrymen who had contracted the virus. Well, we're out of time. I don't have time to ask a couple of uh, additional questions. Everyone, regardless of age, who gets the coronavirus is equally at risk of serious illness. Well, that's a false uh, uh, statement. And according to those same Syracuse University researchers, a person under 45 who is involved in an accident is three times more likely to die than a person uh, in that same age group who contracts uh, COVID-19. The answer would be true. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll take a quick break and we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, protesters turned rioters vandalized and broke into Portland's police association office last night, setting fires at the building and elsewhere nearby, police said on Wednesday morning. Hundreds of protesters marched to the office building on North Lombard Street near North Campbell Avenue. They arrived at approximately 945, at which point police said they blocked all lanes of traffic at the intersection, according to information released by the department this morning. Police said a large fire was started on North Lombard Street soon after the group arrived at the police um, association office. Members of the group started vandalizing the Portland Police Association office with graffiti while others attempted to pull the plywood off the doors and windows, police further allege. Tuesday night's uh, events escalated even further. In one instance, just before 11.20 a.m., police said a truck dragged a motorcycle through the crowd that is amassed on uh, North Lombard Street, although no one was struck. Then at about 11.35, about 15 minutes later, the group had set up several barricades and fences along North Lombard Street. The group continued to tamper with the doors in an effort to break into the police association office and several fires were started in the streets and around the building. Early this morning, around 12.30 a.m., a fight led to gunfire just one block from the Portland Police Association office. No one was struck by gunfire and no one would speak to officers regarding the incident. Shortly after, rioters forced their way into the police association's office where police said they damaged the property and set fire to the building. The demonstrations and riots had largely come to a close by 3.30 a.m. Police said several people had been arrested in connection with the events of Tuesday night into Wednesday morning, though additional details were not immediately available. A different group gathered in downtown Portland for a largely peaceful, unrelated demonstration, according to police. And despite instances of blocked traffic, uh, authorities said that they did not interact with the group. Agents left Portland last week, federal agents and troopers with the Oregon State Police have taken their place. Meanwhile, Marsha Blackburn argues that Democrats' failure to condemn violence by Antifa is unbelievable. She's a Republican out of Tennessee uh, speaking at a hearing held earlier in the day. Breaking the law is wrong. There's a difference between peaceful protests, which is to be protected, and with what is happening with these rioters, looters, and those that are creating all this disruption, she said, being interviewed on Fox and Friends. She addressed the Department of Justice's task force that's investigating the funding and organizational structure behind the violence erupting during the protests. They say they're trained Marxists, so the Department of Justice is working on that. We're looking forward to those answers, Blackburn uh, said. 
Her comments came after tensions flared at a Senate hearing on Antifa when a top Democrat walked out of the room declaring she couldn't sit through Senator Ted Cruz's rhetorical speeches any longer. The dust-up occurred when uh, Cruz, a Republican from Texas, blasted Democrats for not condemning Antifa more directly for the violence and destruction that has taken hold in certain cities across the country in the wake of George Floyd's death in Minneapolis. But Senator Maisie Hirano, Democrat from Hawaii, said Cruz just wasn't listening during the more than three-hour hearing when Democrats said violence is not acceptable. He was critical of the fact they wouldn't speak specifically of Antifa. But she went on to say, uh, sometimes I don't think you listen. She told Cruz at the Senate Judiciary Subcommittee hearing as he finished up with a nearly 10-minute speech. So how many times have I had to say that we all should be denouncing violent extremists of every stripe. Does that include Antifa, said Cruz, who was uh, chairing the committee. I have the time, uh, Hirano shot back. I hope this is the end of this hearing, Mr. Chairman, and that we don't have to listen to any more of your rhetorical speeches. Uh, Thank you very much. I'm leaving. Hirano then packed up to leave the hearing before Cruz adjourned it. Well, I appreciate the As always, kind and uplifting words of Senator Hirano, Cruz said, and I would also note that throughout her remarks, she still did not say a negative word about Antifa, nor has any Democrat here. And the back and forth continues. David Limbaugh points out that um, America's survival hangs in the balance. It's survival as the constitutional republic we have known. How long can this nation survive when this main cultural and educational institutions preach a relentless, unchallenged stream of anti-Americanism to young people and others who lack the background to resist this toxicity? He writes, if current events aren't enough to turn your head, please consider the following data presented by Eric Kaufman, professor of politics at the University of London Burbeck College. Kaufman, he writes that the cultural revolutionaries who are toppling statues and renaming buildings are changing minds and could be in a position to enact a root-and-branch reconstruction of America into something completely unrecognizable to its present-day inhabitants. He adds, imagine a country whose collective memory has been upended with a new constitution, anthem, and flag. Its name changed from the sinful America to something less tainted. Far-fetched? Not according to data I have collected on what liberal white Americans actually believe. And again, this is um, Mr. Kaufman's study. He, Eric Kaufman is a professor of politics at the University of London Burbeck College. Notice Kaufman isn't talking merely about the extreme left, but American liberals. This is chilling stuff, but unsurprising. In Guilty by Reason of Insanity, uh, David Limbaugh writes, uh, rather warns, that socialism is not the only terrible idea the left is promoting. The left isn't turning to socialism just because its members think it's more equitable than capitalism, but also because they seek revenge against America's founding generation and its successor beneficiaries. Uh, They want to eradicate the Western tradition that spawned our unique American culture because it allegedly led to uh, continental uh, larceny against Native Americans, is in uh, irredeemable moral debt over slavery, and is forever culpable for oppressing minorities and women through white privilege and the inherent exploitation of capitalism, end quote. I don't claim to be a prophet, but is, um, uh, is my statement not vindicated by America's present turmoil, Limbaugh asks. Well, returning to Professor Kaufman, he polled American liberals to gauge their willingness to jettison the country's cultural identity. On the 7th of May, before the George Floyd killing, he surveyed a sample of 870 Americans who lean uh, young, liberal and white. The group was not representative of the American population at large, but drawn from the the Amazon mechanical uh, Turk and um, uh, prolific academic survey platforms used by thousands of academics. 
he consciously removed conservatives and centrists to focus only on self-described uh, liberals. He presented them in this survey with 16 outlandish statements and was amazed by their answers. He surveyed them again in uh, the 15th of uh, June after Floyd's killing and uh, subsequent protests and found that things had gotten even crazier. He asked them to agree or disagree that Americans should, one, rebalance the history taught in schools until its voice and subjects reflect the demographic of the population and heritage of Native people and citizens of color. Two, move after public consultation to a new American anthem that better reflects our diversity as a people. Three, rename our cities and towns until they match the demographic of the population. Four, rebalance the art shown in museums across the country until an analysis of content shows that it reflects the demography of the population and perspective of Native American people and citizens of color. Five, move after an open public process to a new name for our country that better reflects the contributions of Native Americans and our diversity as a people. Six, rename our states until they better reflect the heritage of Native people and the citizens of color. Seven, gradually replace many older public buildings with new structures that don't perpetuate a Eurocentric order until a more representative public space is achieved. Eight, respectfully uh, remove the monuments to four white male presidents at Mount Rushmore as they presided over the conquest of Native people and repression of women and minorities. Nine, allow our public parks to return to their natural state before a European sense of order was imposed upon them. Ten, move after public consultation to a new American flag that better reflects our diversity as a people. Eleven, consider adopting a new national language that will be forged from the immigrant and Native linguistic diversity of our country's past. Twelve, remove existing statues of white men from public spaces until the stock of statues matches the demographics of the population. 13. Gently remodel the Statue of Liberty to make it better reflect the diversity of America. 14. Rename our streets and neighborhoods until they match the dem demographics of the population. 15. Move after public consultation to a new American constitution that better reflects our diversity as a people. And 16. Begin changing the layout of our cities, towns, and highways, moving away from the grid system to follow the more natural trails originally used by Native people. Well, the professor reports every one of these proposals represents a radical blow to American cultural nationhood, yet six of them carry the support of more than 50% of committed liberals. Eight are backed by a majority of the 40% of uh, liberals who identified as very liberal. Some 80% of those who have made up their minds would replace the national anthem and constitution. Well, assuming this survey is uh, remotely scientific and representative of liberal thinking, and there's, there's a big question there, it should be uncontroversial to say the American left wants to radically transform America. Well, after considering the data and the support and sympathy for the violence, looting and anarchy sweeping the country, could it be any clearer what's at stake in the 2020 elections? I respectably, and I'm now uh, quoting uh, David Limbaugh, I respectfully appeal to reasonable people on both sides of the political aisle to recognize what's happening to the greatest nation in history and oppose it before it's too late. These kinds of revolutions don't end well for everyone, anyone, including the nihilists who engineer them. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Pastor John MacArthur may face a fine, arrest, or other sanctions for holding indoor services, saying we will obey God rather than men. Well, county officials there have allegedly threatened Grace Community Church in California with 
fines and possible arrest for reopening the church in defiance of Governor Gavin Newsom's uh, directives during the pandemic. Still, Pastor John MacArthur has vowed to continue in-person services, again saying we will obey God rather than men. In a video statement on Friday, he says we're going to be faithful to the Lord and we're going to leave the results to him. Whatever happens is going to be what he allows to happen, but he will be on our side because we will be obedient and faithful to his word. We will not bow to Caesar, he added. The Lord Jesus Christ is our king. Well, officials from the Los Angeles County Department of Public Health have threatened MacArthur with repercussions such as fines and even possible arrest if his church doesn't comply with the state orders. Franklin Graham, a president of Samaritan's Purse and the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association, wrote on Facebook, the department's environmental health division is investigating and will be reaching out to the church leaders to let them know they need to comply with the health orders, according to Religion News Service in their report. Well, Dr. MacArthur noted that uh, this wouldn't be the first time uh, that they find themselves in a trial or end up in court setting. In 1980, Grace Community Church was sued for clergy malpractice by the parents of a 24-year-old who was part of the church after he committed suicide. Nearly a decade later, the U.S. Supreme Court declined to hear the case, allowing the California Supreme Court's decision to dismiss the lawsuit to stand. And while he said he doesn't know what the Lord has for us this time around, they will continue meeting for worship every Sunday. We will meet as the Church of Jesus Christ because we're commanded to do that. We will sing, we will pray, we will fellowship. We will proclaim the gospel and the word of God far and wide and even around the world through this live stream opportunity that we have, the pastor stressed. Well, commenting on churches, including mega churches that have chosen to shut down until January, he said, I don't have any way to understand that other than they don't know what a church is and they don't shepherd their people. But that's sad. End quote. And you have a lot of people in Christianity who seem to be significant leaders who aren't giving any strength and courage to the church. They're not standing up and rising up and calling on Christians to be the church in the world, as I said on Sunday. Well, the pastor also addressed misinformation about his church and ministry regarding the Paycheck Protection Program. He clarified that the federal government did send us money. We did not receive that money. We sent it back. We did not receive a dime from the federal government. California continues to see a surge in coronavirus cases. It had a record high of 215 COVID deaths on Friday. Total uh, confirmed cases, rather, so far are 516,000, and over 9,000 deaths have been recorded in the state thus far. With the surge, Newsom indefinitely closed churches and other businesses in more than 30 of the state's 58 counties. Some churches, including Destiny Christian Church in Rockland, said they would still gather for worship. In an earlier statement, MacArthur and elders of the church said that they respectfully inform their civic leaders that they have exceeded their legitimate jurisdiction and faithfulness to Christ prohibits us from observing the restrictions they want to impose on our corporate worship services. Government officials, they went on to say, have no right to interfere in ecclesiastical matters in the way that undermines or disregards the God-given authority of pastors and elders. He wrote that compliance would be disobedience to our Lord's clear commands. 
Grace Community Church is making efforts to accommodate all persons as they take various precautions during the pandemic. About a thousand extra seats will be kept outside the church building for those who may want to sit in the open. The church will also provide sanitizers and masks for those who want them. The pastor noted that they um, want to be as gracious as they can be to as many people as possible and be welcoming to all, whether people want to remain at home and watch online, attend in person, but prefer outside seating or wear masks or not wear masks. We don't want anybody to feel unwelcome. We don't want anyone to feel like an outsider because they sit outside or because they decide to wear a mask. That's all fine. That's all temporary. That's all superficial kinds of things, he said. But Grace Community Church will meet. In other news, there's a campaign against people of faith in China, and there is no line the Chinese government apparently is unwilling to cross. On Thursday, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo testified at a congressional hearing highlighting the Trump administration's effort to stop Chinese human rights violations and international aggression in its tracks. Proud of the administration's track record, the Secretary of State uh, Pompeo stated, no administration, Republican or Democrat, has been as aggressive in confronting China's malign actions as President Donald Trump. We've sanctioned Chinese leaders for their brutality in Xinjiang, imposed export uh, controls on companies supporting it, and warned U.S. companies against using slave labor in their supply chains. We've terminated special treatment agreements with Hong Kong in response to the Chinese Communist Party's crackdown. Well, this is an impressive list of accomplishments, and the Chinese government proves every day that it deserves these um, entanglements. Well, news has also serviced this month that low-income Christian families are pressured to abandon their religious practices before they receive government aid, particularly during this pandemic. Local officials in one province told Christians to stop attending church services and instructed them to hang portraits of Mao Zedong uh, in their homes – to replace those of any religious figure, a pastor or Jesus himself. One woman even lost her financial and uh, financial aid after she said, thank God, upon receiving her small monthly stipend. At uh, a hearing, at the hearing on Thursday, Pompeo once again reiterated that China's abuses against Uyghur Muslims is the stain of the century. The most recent horrors committed against Uyghurs to be exposed in China's efforts to limit Uyghur births. New research estimates that Thousands of um, hundreds of thousands of Uyghur women have been subjected to mandatory pregnancy checks, forced sterilization and even forced abortions, which, of course, is not new in China with the one child policy. That has been the practice for many years. One Uyghur woman who worked at a hospital recounted witnessing forced abortions. The husbands were not allowed inside. They take in the women who are always crying. Afterwards, they just threw the unborn child, the fetus in a plastic bag. Uh, in uh, the trash. One mother begged to die after her seven-month-old baby was killed. Well, such tragic accounts are a grave reminder of the suffering that the Uyghurs endure every day in China as well. And while as many as three million Uyghurs uh, languish in re-education camps, the Chinese government has been putting many of these arbitrarily detained victims to work in its forced labor program as well. And as China seeks to financially profit from its vast intermittent camp system, American companies, consumers, and politicians should be making every feasible effort to avoid funding these atrocities. And what's often described as the open-air prison in Xinjiang, um, advanced surveillance technology is used to track and control ordinary people as they go about their day, we are being told. And this is what the secretary 
testified to. Unfortunately, American technology companies have directly and indirectly aided the Chinese government in its use of technology to repress the Uyghur people. And major technology companies, including Apple, have been linked to forced labor in Xinjiang as well. Reports of the Chinese government's repression of religion continue to get worse, worse rather, even when it seems that's not possible. And the story goes on uh, from there. The Trump administration's efforts to expose the abuses spearheaded by Pompeo is important work. Nothing will change until the world knows about uh, what's going on there. And now that China's repression is out in the open, it's time for free countries around the world to join the United States in pushing back on China's oppressive regime. And again, this is a testimony by the Secretary of State Pompeo regarding uh, what the administration is doing to address this and uh, calling upon the uh, wider world to respond in a similar way. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. When we come back, I want to share with you from an email I received from Pastor Greg Allen. He's the senior pastor at Bethany Bible Church regarding the burning of Bibles here in the city of Portland, helping to put into perspective an event that is offensive to many believers. What should our response be? We'll talk with you a bit more about what Pastor Allen had to say in his email when we return. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. I received an email from a dear friend who is a pastor here in Portland, Pastor Greg Allen from Bethany Bible Church, and he writes that once again, Portland is making national and international news. The burning of Bibles before the Federal Justice Building has left us all with a sense of shock. Just when you think things have gotten as bad as they could get, we receive a new surprise. But as I thought about this, he writes, I remember that at the same time, many of us have been praying for a greater revival in Portland. We've been praying that Portland in our time would soon become the most transformed city in the United States by the gospel and that the whole world would be amazed by the transformation. I am, I am supposing that uh, for that transformation to be evident to the world, the spiritual darkness of our city must first be put in vivid display. And perhaps, if I may express this in a very careful way, God is making things ready for an astonishing answer to our prayers. I suggest we should intense, intensify those prayers and keep our hope strong. I appreciate this perspective. He goes on. I also suggest that we also respond to the burning of Bibles by reading, quoting, preaching, and obeying our Bibles all the more. Then he makes these references from Scripture. The Apostle Paul once wrote a letter to his young colleague in ministry, Pastor Timothy. He was exhorting Timothy to be faithful to his call to the ministry as pastor and preacher. He warned him that there would come a time in the last days, very much like the times we're living in today, when people would no longer listen to a word from God. Paul said that it would be a time when men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, pride, uh, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power from Second Timothy, the third chapter. In the light of this, he reminded Timothy of his personal heritage in the word and said, Evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Uh, verses 13 through 15, again in second chapter of Timothy. 
Paul went on to explain that it was about the word of God that makes it so essential. In 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17, he wrote, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so in the spiritually dark days in which we're living, a darkness that is perhaps being put on display in Portland more than almost anywhere else, there couldn't be anything greater for the church to do than to faithfully set God's word before the world. This is especially true at a time when it is being rejected or even being publicly burned. Paul went on, in fact, to tell Timothy to do that very thing. In the first few verses of 2 Timothy Verse four, he urged Timothy in the strongest terms possible. I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convict, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears. They will heap up for themselves teachers and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be and uh, be turned aside to fables. But you, you be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. And these are words that apply to us as well. Those of us who name the name of Jesus as Lord and Savior, seizing the opportunity that he has given us while we draw breath to faithfully serve him to honor his word by studying his word, applying it to our own lives and making his word known. And then Pastor Greg um, concludes, and in all of this, I suggest that we make sure we do what the Lord Jesus told us to do in the very Bible that was set on fire last weekend. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your father in heaven. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. His gracious gift. Now that is a quote from Matthew fifth chapter, beginning in the 44th verse. I hope something of these thoughts may be helpful to you. Pastor Greg concludes. Once again, these are wise words from God's word and a uh, a reminder that many across uh, our city and the surrounding area are praying for revival in Portland. And I suppose we shouldn't be surprised that as things escalate, um, as uh, concern grows, that perhaps and attention is focused on what's happening here in Portland. Perhaps God is, as Pastor Greg suggests, uh, setting the stage for something dramatic Uh, by way of transformation that will be evident to the world. Portland is in the news in very unflattering ways virtually every day and has been for over 60 days. Uh, And the way it's uh, it's covered, it gives the impression that essentially all of Portland is in flames. That's a bit of an exaggeration, but not by much. Uh, So perhaps the transformation will be evident to the world as the spiritual darkness of our city is put on vivid display. And again, Pastor Greg says that we ought to respond to the burning of Bibles by reading God's word, honoring God's word, quoting, preaching, and obeying our Bibles all the more. I shared a survey a week or so ago 
about the fact that people are less and less engaged in Scripture. Um, this is a, a change from the initial um, announcement of the pandemic and the, the quarantine. People are spending less time in their scriptures. Part of it is um, if you're not attending services, uh, it's more challenging for a lot of people in studying God's word. A lot of people aren't availing, the, availing themselves of the opportunity for online um, uh, worship and Bible study for a variety of reasons. Some people just don't have access to the technology. Uh, but whatever the case may be, we all have access to God's word in our homes, online, on our phones, wherever it is, let's not neglect God's word during this season. And let's trust that while we are experiencing a challenge during this pandemic and the quarantine that is a part of it, that God is at work in ways that we are unaware, um, that he has not abandoned our city, that he has not looked away um, in frustration and disgust, but God is hearing the prayers of his people. And we anticipate and thank in advance, thank him in advance for the work that he is doing right here in this city. So let's be hopeful. Let's be trusting. And once again, let's read our Bibles. Let's quote from Scripture. Let's preach from God's word. Let's obey what the Scriptures have to tell us. And let's wait in hopeful anticipation of what God is doing and will do even in our day. I want to thank James Blend for producing today's program, Clark Hilton for engineering, Dan Rice for the use of his office, and thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.